0: I'm your host, Tom Wilmer. Come along and join me for a visit with author Katja Sengel, the author of a new book just coming out, Straight Jackets and Lunch Money. Hi, Katja. Hi, Tom. This is a poignant, a painful, close-to-the-heart story. It must have taken you a long time to get the courage up to delve back into your life.
1: Yeah, it actually, I mean, it started... I joke it's the first book I ever wrote and the last one, most recent, because I started it back when I first started doing creative writing in college, Mm -hmm. and then I put it away for decades and came back at it much more recently.
0: Interesting. It's interesting in that the story has been embedded deep in your heart and soul for your whole life. And yet, for a long time, you kind of buried it and stuffed it, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I think as a journalist, I always tell other people's stories and even though I wrote a memoir before about my time in Chernobyl it was really just an excuse to tell the stories of the people I met in Ukraine and so I never really explored what got me into being a journalist originally and when I went back and looked at this time as a child when I was in a psychosomatic ward at a children's hospital for a number of months I realized that actually was kind of something that has guided my professional career
0: interesting so let's back up in time go way back you wound up in a psychiatric ward at stanford hospital as a 10 year old in a straitjacket that's an incredible story
1: Yeah, and it's funny. I always thought it was a psychiatric ward, too. It's actually psychosomatic, and I didn't even know what that was when Mm -hmm. I went back and looked at it. As a 10-year-old, I just knew I was hospitalized in a, a children's hospital in a unit that people treated differently. This was 1986, so there was strong stigma when it came to mental illness. and They so, changed
0: it to mental health. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the unit was a mix of the medical and the psychiatric, so psychosomatic, and you got the kids that They didn't know how to treat otherwise. So they were kids who had mental problems, but they also had medical problems. So Mm -hmm. we got diabetic children, children who had uh, childhood diabetes who weren't eating correctly. Mm -hmm. And so they had the medical issues of the diagnosis of the diabetes, but then the mental of, well, why aren't they taking care of themselves? So it was... um, You couldn't treat them with just one or the other. You had to mix them together. Mm -hmm.
0: I might have missed it, but I was a little, there's an enigma there about why they had to put you in a straitjacket. Were you physically lashing out and trying to hit people?
1: So I was a a very stubborn 10-year-old, and I ended up in the hospital because I had uh, stopped eating, and it wasn't per se an eating disorder of the classic kind. It was more a suicide attempt, a way to get out of a difficult uh, family situation. And so I fought in the hospital, they force fed me and I fought it. And yes, I guess you could say physically, I didn't lash out at people so much as if they tried to put the tube down my nose, mm-hmm. I would push them away, I would pull the tube out. Mm-hmm. I would, so I would physically, I. I don't think I ever struck anyone i just fought back when they tried to force something on me mm-hmm. and so the straitjacket. i believe i was restrained other times not with a straitjacket, but when they needed to force feed me they tied me down once to the bed in order to do that and mm-hmm. so i'm trying to remember it was funny i had forgotten the straight jacket and then i had to ask my mother and she reminded me and then so I just know it was something I was refusing treatment,
0: um, Mm -hmm. and I
1: don't know exactly how at that point, but that was what it was. Were you
0: consciously in your mind attempting to commit suicide, or was it just this unconscious rebellion that acted out by not eating?
1: It was more unconscious in that... I didn't really want to die. I wanted people to notice something was wrong Mm -hmm. and do something. So I I didn't really have this desire not to exist anymore. But once I started started stopping eating, (laughs) it kind of got ahead of itself and there became almost this addictive quality of, oh, I can go this far. Oh, Mm -hmm. let's take it further. And then when people weren't noticing or acting on it then i got more withdrawn and more well if no one cares i don't care so it's hard to say i know it initially though no it wasn't a desire to immediately end my life
0: what i read into it was you were a total trooper a survivor and why you stopped eating was to save money so you could help your dad who was unemployed. Talk to us about that. That's a survivor. Yeah,
1: initially so um my dad was severely depressed and without a job and always complaining about money and so I thought I had the solution as a ten year old. <laughs> um, I got a dollar for lunch every day. So I thought, well if I don't eat lunch, then I have a dollar. And my goal was to save them slowly um, and have a nice pile before I gave it to my dad. So mm-hmm. there'd be this hunk of money. But then it it kind of spiraled from there into, well, more than just the saving money. But it did start with that. But then, oh, people don't notice. Well, why should I eat anything at all? Mm-hmm. Um, and it got, yeah, uh, snowballed, I guess.
0: And what do you attribute to you getting better and becoming discharged?
1: I think um, it was a slow process. I, I think some of it was, and even after I was discharged, there were still a continual fight with certain things. But there was people finally were, adults were listening to me a little bit and trying to, uh, fix the living situation. And, and I guess also the time in the, at the hospital, I started to meet other kids too. And there was one point I realized some of those kids were probably going to be spend, some of them were going to die and some were going to get better and some were going to be institutionalized for much of their lives. And I didn't want to be in an institution for most of my life. And I didn't really want to die. So my choice was (laughs) that that was the only other option is to start trying to get better.
0: So you turned yourself around, ultimately?
1: I think so. But it was was also, it was a battle. I mean, even after I got out, I was, I'd have setbacks and things. um, And later, I think I kind of had definitely still dealt with depression from that. And so I I did, I would say like um, medication has helped with that and Mm -hmm. then therapy on and off over the years and stuff. So not, not all on my own at all. No, but I think, yeah, it was, it has to be in the end, the person who decides. Right.
0: So the intervening 20 years or so, you did a good job of stuffing and burying a lot of those experiences that you went to. And there was a moment in Oakland when you were with incarcerated teenagers where you all of a sudden painfully flashed back and things started bubbling up and surfacing. Talk to us about that.
1: Yeah, I did. I'd actually, it was weird because I, well, I I totally did bury it. I switched schools when I finally got out. I didn't want to talk about what happened or acknowledge that at all. It was still there in some places because in my writing in college, it came out and then I'd always had this desire to kind of mentor kids who were struggling, and I'd actually wanted to volunteer at a hospital at one point, but it is psychosomatic or just psychiatric ward, and it was too complicated. I wouldn't be allowed, Mm -hmm. so I... Uh, looked at um, volunteering at a youth detention facility in the Bay Area. I learned about this program, it's called, it still exists, The Beat Within, where they produce their own uh, publication. And it has poetry, it has short stories, it has art. And so I decided to volunteer for that. And so once a week we'd go in and there'd be different units we'd go to. And there was one actually with kids who had uh, I forget what they termed it, but basically mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And then there was the, the max unit with the really severe case and the different things. And so I'd been doing that, I don't know, several months or so. And and we'd be interrupted sometimes with, they'd have to lock them down because there was a fight or something. And, and one night, one of the kids, and he was one of the younger ones, probably I think about 12 years old or so, and he was put in a straitjacket. And I saw that and... It really really bothered me and I'd seen a lot uh, while I was there I'd seen the kids locked up you know I mean <laughs> there are a lot of things to bother you and uh-huh.
0: was the memory of you being in a straitjacket at that moment in time had it been suppressed and that's what brought it back to the surface
1: I think so because I did I had no idea why I was so upset mm. by this kid being in a straitjacket because I did not remember that and I actually afterwards I called my mom and I said mom was I ever in a straightjacket and she's the one who told me mm-hmm. and then I started kind of remembering it but yeah no I it wasn't something and I just couldn't understand why it was so upsetting to see mm-hmm. this kid I mean it's an upsetting thing to see but no I matter see, what, yeah. yeah I'd seen a lot of upsetting things as a journalist and just working there in general and it just didn't match mm-hmm. my level of upset for that God. um and so that was when she told me and then I kind of remembered but it still wasn't it's hard for me to fully remember that I kind of see it almost from outside myself. Mm -hmm.
0: So at some point you decided to chronicle that whole episode in your life. Was it out of catharsis? What spurred that?
1: I think for me it was I felt to understand my work and my life I kind of had to revisit this and also to understand I was in there more than a hundred days and I wanted to understand the treatment um, because I knew what I felt as a kid, but I didn't understand the reasoning behind it. And I think what it was, they like,
0: thought they were going to achieve. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: and as a journalist, you're always trying to understand things. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so you even sought out some of the employees, right, yeah, years yeah. later.
1: I, I sought out the psychiatrist who was the main the, – The there was a main pediatrician over the unit and a main psychiatrist, mm-hmm. and I sought both of them out, um, and then I sought out some of the counselors who had worked with me. I really – Wanted to find the other kids, but that proved impossible yeah. because um, I only remembered first names and
0: well, their privacy exactly. issues. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so I was able to. And
0: what did you learn by talking to the therapist?
1: It was fascinating, especially with the the main doctor, Doctor Hans Steiner, who unfortunately passed away. I got to talk with him, but just before the book came out, he mm-hmm. passed away, and he was really. Kind of, um, he had been, when I was a kid, I called him God. He he had <laughs> authority over everything. And I, I really didn't like him as a kid because he did things I didn't like because I didn't want to be in the hospital. Right. But as an adult meeting him, I found him really fascinating. He was a really interesting guy in understanding his thought process. And I hadn't understood how different a psychosomatic ward was at the time. And he really told me more about that and he was he was also he was austrian originally and um had fallen in love with the whole um freudian things and so it was funny he was almost this cliche in a way Mm -hmm. but but he was a real person and he was interesting and i still didn't like him because of my memories of Mm -hmm. that but i I respected him and found him really interesting, and it was interesting the way the relationship changed. I was still scared of him because <laughs> he had power over me then, but then as a journalist, I kind of got to have some of the power.
0: Uh-huh. So
1: yeah. I think that was really nice for me, not to be the…
0: Yeah, so kind of equalizing yeah,
1: common yeah, common ground. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the sick one. I was the journalist. Yeah. Um, there were some who did not refuse to talk to me, though. Um, mm-hmm. And that actually really bothered me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I can understand.
0: But that was um, a long time, a great interlude in between.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: 20-some like years?
1: It was um, 30 years when 30 I did years. the book. Yeah, yeah. 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 and. Yeah, it was weird to see them because in my head I had this picture. I remember Dr. Steiner in particular. I remember being this very tall guy, and I met him, and I was taller than him. <laughs> like, but I mean, I'd been ten years old at the right. time, yeah, so yeah. it
0: was so healing process. You were discharged, and then how did the journey go?
1: Um, up and down. I'd, I definitely had. There were times I, I still refused to eat, and um. My mom and stepdad actually held me down and used a turkey baster
0: to, oh, yeah, uh, to,
1: the, to this day, I, I really, I can't stand turkey basters. <laughs> um, and
0: So take that off the Christmas list. I, exa-
1: yeah, well, I'm yeah. hoping this doesn't run right around Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's definitely tough love. She was going to make sure I didn't end up back in the hospital, mm-hmm. and I never did on a long stay. I did definitely have times I... I needed medical attention. I did find um, uh, Zoloft, the medication, mm-hmm. to be really helpful for me. And over the years, I try and go off at everyone's while, and it never goes well. So they're, they're definitely ups and downs. Sports, for me, became a coping mechanism. It was like... Um, and they say that happens with eating disorders, and it became almost like another addiction. You get just compulsive uh-huh. about something, but at least it was sports over eating.
0: Well, you can have endorphins kicking in, mm-hmm. which are ameliorating feelings, yeah.
1: So it's a healthier mm-hmm. thing, but it can also still be. so. Yeah. And then writing, I think, helped a lot, too. Uh-huh. Um,
0: so this process of you going back and opening up the wounds and revisiting, was it healing for you in a very powerful way
1: it's strange because people ask that and it actually it was really really hard and when I was finishing the book I was actually in a really really bad place because I'd kind of gone too deep right, into going yeah. back yeah. Um, but now especially when I've heard from people I've done a couple events and I hear from people who say um, People are really impacted by it. And I think a lot of people are impacted by it. And I think because a lot of people relate it to different, not just they relate it to maybe addictions with alcohol, drugs, different things. Mm-hmm. They they see a voice for it. And especially with the kids. And I hear from people say that child voice, because it's written in two voices, me as an adult and me as the 10-year-old. They say it helps them understand more kids. And then also a lot Lots of people have bought it for their therapists, which for me is a big compliment because it means I must be expressing something they maybe aren't able to say, but they think the therapist would understand or I'm helping that. So that actually has been really, I guess, rewarding for me, I Mm -hmm. think. But I can't say it's been incredibly, it's something I felt like I I needed to write, but I can't say I've enjoyed it or it's been helpful or anything.
0: (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) It's
1: it's funny with my books are like that, though. It's like Mm -hmm. I feel like I need to write them. I I can't explain exactly why I feel I need to write them Mm -hmm. or or if I think.
0: Do you think maybe it's like putting things in order and making sense of your journey?
1: Maybe. um, Or it's something I just feel like people need to pay attention to. um, Mm -hmm. And that's not always a a happy thing that they need to pay attention to. It's just something I think that needs to be said and needs to be out there. And I do think, like I said, it's been helpful when I hear from people like that and stuff, but it's also brought up a lot of, oh, it it was one of my aunts said um, it was a great book and and heartbreaking at the same time. So there's a lot of pain Mm -hmm. it still Mm -hmm. deals with. And so... Uh. um, Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Well, it captivated me, I'll tell you. Thanks. It's one of those books you can't put down. To learn more about Katya's world?
1: Yeah, my website, probably it's just my name, K-A-T-Y-A c-e-n-g-e-l dot com and i do a lot of my journalism stories up there and events and book signings when i have those um and i have a couple in the local area san los obispo area that'll be in um january
0: and- very cool in bay area
1: you know, I did some already, but I hope to do some more in the spring, probably.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're an adjunct professor yes. at journalism at Cal Poly State University.
1: Yeah, and uh, it was fun. Actually, one of my students, current students, went to one of my events. So that was oh, cool. me. I got to meet her mom as well.
0: <laughs> Very cool. Katja Single, thank you so much for sharing.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer. We've been listening to author Katja Single. The intro and outro underbed music in this show was performed by four-time Grammy Award-winning musician David Holt. And the cut is called Sarah Jane's Tune.
1: You've been listening to the Lowell Thomas Award-winning travel show Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer, a featured podcast on npr.org's podcast directory. You are invited to subscribe to Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer on npr.org, iTunes, and more than 20 other podcast channels around the world. To learn more about Tom Wilmer's journeys around America and the world, log on to thomaswilmer.com.
0: This is Roseanne Cash, and I'm sitting here with Tom Wilmer. Please support your local NPR station. If I didn't have NPR, I would feel like my lifeline to the world has been cut. So, yes, please support your local NPR station. World Bicycle Relief partners with communities to deliver specially designed, locally assembled, rugged bicycles for people in need. Nearly one billion people in rural regions of the world live in communities far from the nearest paved road, walking miles every day just to survive. Distance is a barrier to attending school, receiving health care, delivering goods to market, and other critical services needed to thrive. Find out how you can help deliver rugged, dependable, life changing bicycles to deserving communities. Log on to worldbicyclerelief.org to learn more.